0: Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Prevett, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by or about women, and this is episode number 18. Hello, Kendra! Hello, Autumn. Welcome. Long time no see. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. This is our life now.
1: I'm excited to talk about these books, though. I feel like in our last episode, we almost said too much.
0: <laughs> we almost stole our own We got fire. really, really excited about those books, <laughs> Because oh. 'cause they're just they're just amazing and there's so much there's so much to them. I've been looking forward to talking about Cinderella Ate My Daughter for literally months.
1: Yes, please. So incredible. So as a recap, we are talking about non-fiction books this month and the two discussion books are Hidden Figures by Margot
0: Lee Shutterly and Cinderella Ate My Daughter by Peggy Ornstein. And they're both fantastic books. So we hope that you've been able to get a chance to read them. And if you subscribe to our newsletter, you knew these were coming like a month ago because, you know, that is a newsletter exclusive.
1: Well, and if the name Peggy Ornstein sounds familiar to you, it is because her book Girls and Sex was the runner up winner of the Reading Women Nonfiction Award for last year. So we are huge fangirls of Peggy Ornstein. So we're going to be talking first about Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shutterly. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I have not seen the movie yet. I really, 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 really wanted to see it. But I think Octavia Spencer is incredible, Um, so I love her. And um, as I also alluded to before, I did read an article. I don't remember if it was on NPR. probably was NPR. If you know me, it probably was NPR. About the movie received some criticism about adding a white savior character to the movie that was not in the book. So if you have seen the movie and you were disgruntled by some things, go pick up the book. As we mentioned before, it is about four African-American mathematicians who worked for NASA in the early days of the space program. They actually started at NASA when it was NACA, and I don't remember what the acronym stood for, but they were hired as computers to help do calculations, literal computer like actual computing before the computers as we know them existed to do mathematical calculations for fighter jets for World War II. And then they stayed on after World War II was over. Then the NACA transferred over into NASA and then they
0: became scientists for the space program. It is just an amazing book. And she doesn't just talk about these women. She talks about like the stuff around them, like their families and their education and um uh, she also talks about the Hampton Newport News area which is actually where I lived during college like when I wasn't at college during college that's where my parents lived so that's where I lived and it was just really interesting. You didn't know that. Yeah. Like I was like I know that place. I know that place. I know that place. And I was only there, you know, like during the summers and part time but still being able to see that and know that history was really cool and I liked how Like, some people don't like all of the extra, like, contextual stuff that she has in the book, not just societal movements or whatever, but also, like, the area. But I think the area is also important because it talks about how the jobs at NASA help the women go, you know, move up into the middle class and through society, and it also talks about, like, the schools. They didn't want one of them to take these classes at this white school, And she went in there and she thought it would be a paradise because they didn't want the black kids to be there. But then she realized that it was equally as underfunded as the black school and that segregation was hurting both races. I didn't really realize that. I thought it was really fascinating.
1: Well, and I think it's helpful too and that she does put it in context. And I will say that at times it is information overload. Like she adds so many details that it I, did, I personally got bogged down just a little bit. So it's not a fast read. It's when you need to read slowly and kind of digest and process what's going on. But I w- greatly appreciated the fact that she put it in cultural context of, as we mentioned before, like um, Brown versus Board of Education and um, the March on Washington and all of these like, really historic events that happened, just to kind of realize that this was going on at the same time. She says at the very beginning of the book, and I'm going to read this quote, she says, and we alluded to this in the last episode too, but she says, and these stories need to be told not just because they are about women or black women, but because they are part of the American epic, like the Wright brothers or Alexander Hamilton. And I think that's so, 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 so true. Like this is, like these women calcul- did the math that made it possible for the very first space flight to safely make it back into Earth's atmosphere. Like, that's a big deal. You know? <laughs> and that is a huge deal. So I really think that this book is timely and one that, in a story that needs to be told. For, uh, so, like, from my perspective, whenever you think of those iconic pictures of NASA from the day of the first space flight, it's usually, like, a, a room of white men behind desks. And or with like a few women sprinkled in, and I assumed that all the women who worked at NASA at this time were secretaries, all of Mad Men, if you've ever seen Mad Men, because it's about it's actually the same era. So it was really cool to see that there were women, well, white women and black women who were being who were mathematicians in at NASA at this time.
0: And I really liked how she talked about they were equals in the jobs that they did, and it allowed black women to have a certain level of equality and she talks about that that kind of utopia not utopia isn't the right word but that kind of culture was broken whenever they would go to lunch or when they would go to the bathroom because they had to have, like a separate bathroom and like a different lunch table and they all thought that was ridiculous because obviously it was i just really appreciated how she pointed out that it did give white people a chance to talk to these women and realize that they are talented and they are amazing. In the second half of the book, they talk about she talks about how hard it was for women to get promotions, and that there were these certain levels, and uh, men who had equal qualifications had gone higher in the ranks or whatever, and women still were struggling to get. You know, where these men were years ago. Well, it was heartbreaking.
1: It was heartbreaking. And I th- one thing that I think this book showed extremely clearly is how. When it especially when it comes to issues of women's rights and equality, it's not just gender barriers, but it's also race barriers. So she shows how the white women progressed often more than the the black women at NASA. And so it really, <sighs> opened my eyes and helped me see a little more clearly how that's lived out on a day-to-day basis and how, you know, discrimination, the the many different forms of discrimination can take.
0: A lot of the women were never given the official title of engineer, even though they'd been doing engineer work for years. And it was a big fight if you finally got the label engineer instead of mathematician. She kind of charts, like, the different changes in titles and names and whatever and how they didn't want to give you know, the women, the title of engineer. And she also noted that when black men joined, they had different racial problems, but they started out at a different place than the women did. They started out as engineers. right? And I really like how she pointed that out. It was just really, all the intersectionality of it was fantastic.
1: I also thought it was helpful how she showed how the women balanced their family lives with their careers. Because if you think about it, I always associate this era with the stereotypical... June Cleaver slash Betty Draper, you know, the women stay at home and take care of the kids kind of a thing. And there were women who, it's so heartbreaking that there were some of these women who had to give up their careers for a time in order to have children because there was no such thing as maternity leave. And when you realize that this is not, like, this is not that long ago, but, even showing how they balanced how they were so committed to what they were doing and believed in what they were doing so strongly, they made they made it work like they got help, and you know their community helped them take care of their children and establish that so that way they could have both They could have their family life and their careers at the same time.
0: It's really interesting how a lot of them seemed to come over from like West Virginia or different parts of Virginia, and they would move over. And how um, Virginia was one of the you know one of the, as far as school goes and integration it was one of the worst states if not the worst state I can't remember what it said so a lot of them had to come over from West Virginia which had pretty you know it wasn't great but they had done a little better with their colleges and so it talks about like different math programs the women came from and when it was assumed that when they got married that they would quit school right then there was the um, the one couple where they didn't actually tell um the school that she got married so she could keep going to school but then she got pregnant and she had to drop out and it was just so interesting that like women no longer exist as people when they get married and especially when they have kids we have come so far but yet I feel you know obviously a long way to go but I really appreciate her pointing out this is what they were facing to become just mathematicians they had to work twice as hard to get half as far
1: and the thing that I kept thinking while I was reading this book was, this was not that no. long ago. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it's just, it It still shocks me that it wasn't that long ago. Like, we're talking definitely less than 100 years ago, but around 50, 60 years ago. So it's like our parents' generation, definitely our grandparents' generation. And I, I think it's easy to take for
0: granted what we have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, like, she gives the percentages in the book about how few women... Graduated, and then how few women of color graduated—not just from college, but grad school—and it was just really eye-opening. How fortunate isn't the right word, but how I guess privileged I am that I have gotten an education and that I didn't have the things that these women faced. So we're not talking as specifically
1: about some of the women, and it's just because there's so many people profiled in this book. It's really hard to do it, uh, do justice in a summary. But the, she does follow four main women. And their names are Dorothy Vaughn, Mary Jackson, Katherine Johnson, and Christine Darden together. And they didn't all work in the same department and they didn't have all the same roles. They did work together and were real pioneers in the space industry. And I think this is a great book, especially to give, as I mentioned, there's a young readers' edition of this book, but to give to girls in middle school and in high school who, I guess, just encourage them that hey, just because you're a girl doesn't mean that you can't be in a technical field. Like, girls have brains
0: too, and that's okay. There was a picture I saw somewhere on social media about little girls dressed up as the different characters from the movie. Yes! And that was so cute. That made my heart so happy. It did. It did. And science is kind of fascinating me. I'm not a scientist, but the culture that, you know, software, because it was software, used to be like a woman's science, and she talks about, how that was part of the computing before all of the different um, the computers came on the scene. And I really liked the sections where she talked about the women taking classes to learn how to work the giant computers that took up a room and cost a million dollars.
1: This story I really identified with, too, in the sense that I've always worked in technical kind of fields. And oftentimes I was the only girl in the room. Now, granted, the com- the community that I grew up in was quite rural. So this story really resonated with me in the sense that I'm like, yeah, I understand on a very minuscule, minuscule level, like what it feels like to not be considered able to handle technical information because you're a woman, which is just
0: a ridiculous thing. Yes. Well, we'll spare our listeners from that rant. We will spare you of
1: that rant. But so... It's, this book is just so difficult to summarize because it is so rich and so deep and she does talk a lot about education and she does talk a lot about the politics of the time. Definitely worth your time. If you're going to read any non-fiction book this year, I would highly recommend this one. I think it's very timely. Its publication date is very timely. I think that these are issues that our society is still grappling with and you can tell that this book is thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly researched and she did her homework and I I enjoyed this one a ton. Brings us to the end of our first book,
0: which is Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shetterly. Next is Audible. We want to talk about audiobooks because they are so important to us. I actually listened to two of the books for this month on audio. I listened to Cleopatra and Hidden Figures and they're both narrated by the same narrator. It is really interesting not just to do fiction books, but to also do nonfiction. So you can learn more about history and about uh, society and different things, especially since March is Women's History Month. So if you want to take a listen to um, women in history and definitely pick up Audible for that. Also, I'm still listening to The Unseen World by Liz Moore. I'm really enjoying this book. It's quite long so it's like, I think, 14 some hours, but I really have enjoyed listening to her and her perspective with her father, and it also talks about science, incidentally, and how her dad is a science scientist, and that she is homeschooled, and she talks about the different scientists there that also taught her and helped raise her, and just so many good books out there, and you will note that like, half the books that we ever talk about on this podcast are audiobooks, including uh, the next book we're going to talk about. I listened to on audio. Did you listen to an audio, Autumn? I did listen to this one on audio
1: because Peggy Ornstein read it. (gasps) Yes, and I have an hour commute every day, so I would much rather listen to an audiobook than the news these days, so
0: perfect for me. So if you want to check out any of these books or you want to get some extra reading time in, check out Audible. You can get a Free book um, with your 30 uh, with your trial for a 30 day like subscription you can check that out uh, you just cancel and you won't have to worry about spending any money on that and it helps out the reading women and help us bring amazing content to you so that is audible and the next i guess is cinderella ate my daughter by peggy orenstein because we're obsessed yes. we are obsessed with her if like if we ever meet her i think we're just gonna cry
1: Probably. We will probably act the same way we acted when we met Rebecca
0: Traster, <laughs> Hyperventilate and about die. We basically about passed out. But anyway. Cinderella Ate My Daughter is a discussion of girls in society today and it's basically how the girly girl culture is just taking over how women it's just the girls in particular who become women are perceived in society and what their expectations are. I'm gonna use a little anecdote to start this. So uh, we didn't celebrate Halloween at my house for various reasons, but we did once. And I decided that for this one time, if I had to choose one thing to be through all time, because, you know, as a five-year-old, all time, of course, I was going to be a queen. Because queens had all of the power. So I went through, like, all of the different houses, and we trick-or-treated, and uh, everyone was like, oh, look, the cute little princess. And I was correcting everyone. See, this little five-year-old. No, I'm a queen, straight face. Add a girl. Oh, what? Oh, that's that's nice. And I was, it's like queens actually get to tell people what to do. Yep. <laughs> and I think that really summarizes this book because you always have the evil queen and the innocent, pure princess, and so it really point. It really. Puts this like subconscious thing that power for women, as we saw like with Cleopatra and any other woman who has power. Quite frankly, that they are evil and that princesses are perfect because they do what they're supposed to do. They do what they're told. And she talks about how that goes through society and how that supports um, a lot of patriarchal culture. And you know, I want to point out in the beginning that there's nothing wrong with princesses. That there's nothing wrong with a girl playing princess or whatever. It's just society pushing it on them, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with princesses in and of themselves, but I think, well, we can talk about some reasons why it's wrong or why it can be problematic. Um, so one of the things that really stood out to me is what you just, so to jump off of what you just said, was she talked about how in the name girl, female empowerment the princess culture, not princesses, the princess culture actually perpetuates patriarchal constructs. And she gave this really great anecdote about her daughter being on the playground, and they were all picking which princess that they wanted to be. And two of the girls wanted to be Cinderella. And one of the two girls said, no, you can't be Cinderella. There's only one Cinderella. So she kind of used that to set up how This princess culture is actually keeping girls from, it's like subverting female friendships. And if you've heard us talk about all the single ladies, that's one thing that Rebecca Tracer talks about is that female friendships are a critical cultural building block for the advancement of women. (laughs) And people, people specifically, the patriarchy is afraid of women who get together and start sharing ideas. Oh, my
0: goodness. Is that what we're doing? <sighs> oh, oh, no. Kendra, <laughs> <Can we>, are <laughs> we doing that right now? So, yeah, I, I really, I just trying to breathe because I love this book so much because she talks about how the princess culture is just for girls and that girls are like given only these certain stereotypes that they can envision themselves being while boys have this wide variety of stuff but what's also interesting that I found that she pointed out that they will make female versions of toys like we talked about last time like you know the pink Yahtzee but a lot of times boys you know they're not supposed to play with dolls or doll houses or whatever and because there's like this fear that men won't be masculine right. enough or whatever. And, but girls are allowed to play with tools, and that's totally okay. Or, you know, uh, I remember guys thought they were really daring if they were wearing pink ties. You know, like, I am secure in my masculinity. And I think that that definitely starts out at an early age, especially with so much pink. We're creating such huge gender divisions with pink is only for girls and blue is only for boys. And
1: Well, and it, she shows pretty clearly how when you start, dividing genders at that young of an age and like separating girls from boys where boys only play with boys and girls only play with girls that that lasts well beyond the playground and that there's data that shows that it leads to boardrooms and corporate settings where men don't collaborate with women or they don't know how to talk to women or how to get along with women or how to treat them as any other Way, but a sex object. So, I mean, you may it's easy to think like, oh, this is just this is just playground stuff. They'll outgrow
0: it, but studies are showing that they're not outgrowing everything. Yeah, and I just can't get over the separation of girls' toys and boy toys. And uh, she talks a lot about toys. She went to like a toy convention at a Java Center, and she talked about like how all the girl stuff is pink and sparkly and and i like i like sparkly things but she pointed out that she liked those things but that was a lot like every single thing had to be pink and sparkly and she interviewed several different toy sellers at the convention and they were like yeah you know this pink wave like it used to be just like you know pastels and a variety of colors or whatever and then all of a sudden all this pink just kind of invaded i mean i remember a lot of my toys as a kid Being purple and turquoise. Like, remember those like Sky Dancer things where you would pull the string and. Yes. Before everyone went blind from them and they got rid of them. (laughs) Right.
1: Before (laughs) all gouged our eyes out with them. Yes. I remember the jelly
0: things. Like, you had the jelly sandals and bracelets and things, and those came in like a turquoise, a pink, and a purple. Sometimes yellow. But even if you think about Lisa Frank, which I feel like is. The
1: icon of my childhood. Yes. All hail Lisa. Frank. All hail Lisa. Frey. Her designs were not pink saturated. Like I, I have very vivid images of those bright orange tigers, and those purple, yes. like the bright blue dolphins. And you know they were like super neon, but I don't remember
0: them being pink. Saturated. And like the purple and blue cat. No, the purple and yellow cat. Yes. Like the yes, purple yes, cat yes. and yellow cat with the I, sunflowers. I, I had the trapper keeper with that on it. I <laughs> like the dolphins that were like blue and like they were still like girly and feminine, but it wasn't as like whatever. And I think we underestimate the importance of the images that we are projecting to our. you know the young girls because that's where you start dreaming and that's where you start going forward and my mom always read me a lot of women authors and I wanted to be a writer when I grew up because I saw that that was possible you know and as a child it's hard to imagine anything outside of your sphere and so you have to you know as a parent part of your job is to expose your child to things that will you know, benefit them as a person so they can imagine themselves doing things. And I think just putting all of just princesses and just ballerinas and just fairies is so harmful because, quite frankly, we can't actually be those things. No, and she very compellingly argues that
1: the whole princess thing, which came from Disney, did not come out of a desire to empower girls. It came out of a desire to make money. And so I think for me personally in and of itself it makes me suspect of the whole thing. Because it's it's just a money making thing. Because why 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 make one toy in one color when you can make one toy in one color and a pink one? Then you can sell two instead of one. So and again we're not saying that all this stuff
0: is bad. I just think about it you just have to think about it
1: we're not saying we're not saying that all this stuff is bad it's just important to analyze and think about things and why you're doing them yeah
0: and I thought it was just interesting that the whole thing started with a Disney marketing scheme and how powerful marketing is and I think oh yeah as I've grown to you know work in marketing and just learn more about it like I didn't realize how powerful it was but of course it is because for decades and decades people have been using marketing to change people's perspectives and actually how their brain is wired and how, what they think is true. Exactly.
1: And and she shows too how a, pro, a problem with an overemphasis of princess culture is that it teaches girls early, early on to value themselves based off of their physical appearance. So basically, if you're not careful, princess can become a gateway drug to viewing yourself as a sex object. You know, I need to look pretty and I need to be attractive to a prince
0: so that way he'll, you know, desire me. And, of course, that's just not – it's just not healthy. It is not. And I thought it was interesting how, like, her daughter – was really in, was it trains yeah thomas the tank and she was really into it until she went and that was that was totally fine it was cool and then she went to school and it totally changed her mind now i was homeschooled and so i never had that moment and so i think that that might have helped my not girly girl kind of thing i didn't go to school and i didn't really like playing dress up i've never liked dolls i've tried to like dolls but I had never actually liked dolls. I just, and I didn't feel the pressure to like dolls. Anytime I bought a doll, it was for peer pressure, but not the extensive amount as you would if you went to public school. And I just that really made me think about how my own views have been constructed and how I was given the chance to make my own decisions rather than being influenced by my peers. I was able to decide what I actually liked, not just what I was told too like right I uh, wonder what I'll be like like I was really into uh, like unicorns and horses and I did have that strong face but all the women I was reading about that worked with horses were like strong like horse trainers and they were assertive and they would ride these giant animals around and you know I mean that's that's really cool that's like when I was a kid I was really into mystery novels and hardcore
1: into Sherlock Holmes and there were people in my life who questioned whether or not that was good for me as a girl to be reading about murder. But I actually really strong was able to identify with these strong characters,
0: like these strong, intelligent characters. And it really... You know, shape who I am as a person. I think I think definitely as a society we underestimate the importance of childhood experiences in constructing our identity, which is kind of interesting because I mean, for years people have been talking about, well, back in my childhood this thing happened and ruined my life, but at the same time when we interact with younger kids, I think we underestimate the things that they are experiencing or shaping. Than as adults. Definitely.
1: And I will say here at the end of this discussion that this is a very high-level overview about princess culture. She does ta- touch briefly on this princess culture affects um, minorities. She talks a little bit about Tiana and the princess and the frog, and, um, but she doesn't go as in-depth into it, But and she doesn't talk so much about how this affects female sexuality, but I think girls and sex does a really good job of exploring that. But I think is just a as a launch pad to think about how to analyze princess culture. This is a great first read to kind of get you down, thinking down that path.
0: Yeah, and she talks about in some of the podcast interviews that I've heard that she wrote this when she had, her daughter was younger, and as her daughter aged, she wrote an older book. So I'm looking forward to like what the next book will be. She's inspired by her daughter. Right. Please keep them coming, Peggy, because we love you and... I want to read all of her backlist now, which I actually looked this up right before we recorded. And I was like, what backlist does she have? And she has more. Yay! But she only averages, like, a book every four to five years, which is sad. Well, but they're extremely researched. Yes. So it makes sense that it would take time. It does. But me and my selfishness, you know, I must have... I know. It's okay, Kendra. (sighs) Ah, More Peggy Orenstein. Okay. Well, that is Cinderella Ate My Daughter by Peggy Orenstein. That's the last book. Some excellent thought provoking reads this month. Yeah. We really did really a good job. Yeah, yes. Yes. As <laughs> you <laughs> all, because we picked them. We don't really know until exactly. we read Exactly.
1: <laughs> so before we go, we have a super special announcement. Kinder, would you like to give our super special announcement?
0: Yes. So we have a special giveaway. And we wanted to do this for not just Women's History Month, but for our listeners. And also, there's a movie coming out. So, uh, a lot of people are going back and reading this book. So, you could win a copy of The Zookeeper's Wife uh, by Diane Ackerman. The movie is coming out on March 31st, so you have some time. So, you can go, you're listening to this when around the time it comes out you can go to uh, the show notes uh, or our website readingwomenpodcast.com. is this for our newsletter subscribers? So if you're already subscribed, don't worry you're pretty much already entered but if you aren't subscribed, go there and subscribe and you're entered to win a copy of the zookeeper's wife. We will choose one using a number generator, whatever so it will be it'll be totally random definitely want to go check that out and the zookeeper's wife because I need to describe it is about a woman who runs a zoo with her husband and, in Poland. And so in 1939, uh, obviously the Nazis take over Poland, and so they start hiding Jews in the zoo. I don't really think I need to say much else. It looks really good. That's, yeah, and it was published in 2007, um, which is why I was like, I haven't heard of this book, and that's because, you know. You were busy studying when this book came out. Yeah, Probably. So, yeah, that is uh, The Zookeeper's Wife by Dan Ackerman. Be sure to go to our website or show notes or wherever, and subscribe to our newsletter because our newsletter is just We love great. it. We put a lot of time into it.
1: So with that, we are at the end of our March theme, which was nonfiction books.
0: So what are we reading next month, Kendra? Uh, so next time is a book of the month selections. So there is a story behind this. There's thing. always a story. <laughs> yes. Of course there is, because it's us. So we subscribed to Book of the Month, and we just got so many titles. And we were like, you know what? We bet our listeners who have also gotten tons of Book of the Month selections or have read them or can get them from their library or whatever. So why not do a theme around Book of the Month? And that way we can also read some of the books that we haven't gotten around to reading yet. Um, So we have some amazing selections for you coming up. Um, if you want a head start on our discussion books, that also is in the newsletter. But I cannot wait to talk about some of these books because it's giving us a chance to do a wide range of genres and selections and authors uh, by um, or about women. So yes, it's exciting. That's, it's yes, exciting.
1: It yes. <laughs> we'll try not to steal our own vendor again. We'll just say it's exciting. You should listen. So... That's our show, so you can join us next time when we talk about books that we have received through our Book of the Month subscriptions, and you can find me, Autumn Privet, as always, on Twitter, Instagram, Litzy, and other places on the interwebs, at Autumn Privet, and Kendra, at KD Winchester, And of course, if you're listening to our podcast, if you could drop us a review in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast, it really does help us. It helps other listeners find this podcast so that we can just share the book club all around. And that's it. Thank you so much for
0: listening. We'll talk to you later, guys. Bye. Bye. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers, with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet, or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm So Pandep. Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange.
1: This is Amanda Stern.
0: This is Phil Cly.
1: Hello, this is Stephanie Danler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound.
0: This is Storybound. Storybound.
1: Storybound. This is the Storybound podcast.
0: Season two will be arriving on July 14th with new episodes every Tuesday featuring writers like Stephanie Dandler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.